Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Okay, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. As ruthlessly efficient as the Chinese space program, it's another Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And this month we'll be considering space tourism options, looking ahead to the August landing of NASA's Mars Science Laboratory and commemorating the missions that made the moon landing possible. And joining us are freelance space exploration and astronomy presenter Jerry Stone from Spaceflight UK and Sanjeev Gupta, a professor of Earth Science from Imperial College London, who's going to be working on the Mars mission if it lands successfully. <laughs> Sanjeev, uh, there's just a, a couple of weeks to go. Are you tense about this, uh, this landing? I, I'm excited and elated. The prospect of, as a geologist, going to Mars is just extraordinary. So a little bit tense, but, you know, they've put a lot of effort and research into this programme, and it's the way forward. It's the way forward if you're going to do something really exciting on Mars. So, yeah. What about you, Jerry? Oh, definitely. I mean, this is uh, the first rover to land on Mars since... uh, 2004, for goodness sake. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, Phoenix landed there in 2008, did some great work, but it was limited to one position. This one's going to wander around and will travel much faster than the Mars Exploration Rovers, uh, and it's going to find out a lot. Great, and we'll return to Mars in just a moment, because it's that time of year when we're all thinking about holidays. So do you fancy something a little different this year, something out of this world. No, not a total recall experience, even if they are remaking the film, but the space tourism industry could have the perfect trip for you. Yes, whether you're a billionaire, millionaire, or just incredibly wealthy, there are plenty of options available. I went along to the third European Space Tourism Conference held recently at the Royal Aeronautical Society in London to talk to some of the key players. I'm Andrew Nelson. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at XCOR Aerospace. What are you offering then? If I was uh, in the market for a space tourism adventure, what would you offer me? I'd offer you a pinnacle life event. I'd offer you excitement. I'd offer you adventure. I'd offer you some wonderful experiences with people like yourself. But really at the heart and soul of it, we'd offer you an opportunity to explore who you are and what you're made of. And in practical terms, what would you actually give me? (laughs) (laughs) I understand. Uh, You would get a flight to the edge of space in the Lynx suborbital space plane where you sit in the cockpit with all glass around you with a real astronaut to your left and you're not in the back of a bus with windows and that sort of thing, but you're right up front. If you get on an airplane and you would much prefer to turn to the left than the right, you're probably a good customer for us. So how many people would you be flying with each flight, just the one and the astronaut? That's correct. It's a personal experience just for you. So you sit in the cockpit. It's just two people that are in the links, the pilot astronaut and yourself. And what sort of cost am I looking at? You're looking at $95,000. Tom Shelley, president of Space Adventures. Let's say I have, I don't know, $50 million to spare. I should say I don't. What could you offer me for that? For $50 million, we're able to arrange a flight on a Russian Soyuz spacecraft up to the International Space Station. This would require a little commitment of time beforehand to do some training. Then you would fly off the Soyuz uh, with two professional cosmonauts or astronauts 
uh, out of Baikonur in Kazakhstan. It takes a couple days to reach the space station. And then once you're on board, you live and work alongside the professional crew that make up the space station. Spend about 10 days living on board, doing whatever projects that you've designed, carried with you, uh, or just admiring the view uh, because you're 250 miles above the Earth, uh, going around the Earth every 90 minutes. So absolutely spectacular experience. Virgin Galactic is on track to be the world's first commercial space line, and today is a major milestone. Have your name and how you'd like to be described. Stephen Attenborough, commercial director for Virgin Galactic. Sell me your products. <laughs> what, what would I get if I signed up with Virgin Galactic? The first way I would sell this is to say that it's the only real system today. So it's proven, it's real, and it has been specifically designed to give as many people as possible an affordable, fantastic experience. It's the astronaut experience, so it's the rocket ride to space. It's having a big cabin that you can float around in zero gravity. It's got big windows, so you've got fantastic views of the Earth. It's all run by Virgin, so you're going to have a fantastic experience, and you'll come back an astronaut with, uh, I think, memories to, to last a lifetime. $200,000 $200,000 is the, the sign-up fee at the moment, and you've not flown anyone yet. You've obviously got a market for that. There's enough people that will sign up for that. But is there a point where it goes down in price for people like me, the kind of economy, the, the, the economy experience? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're successful, then the market says the price will go down. I, I, well, generally speaking. <laughs> I know there will be an economist out there that tells me that's not always the case. But, you know, in, in, in our world, it will. Um, and because, you know, we'll see competition come in. We'll see economies of scale. Uh, we'll see probably better technologies, uh, more efficient technologies. And anyway, you know, we have a philosophy. The reason we're doing this in some ways is to make space progressively affordable for more people. My name is Art Dula. I'm the chairman of Excalibur Almos Limited, an Isle of Man company. Why, if I wanted to go into space, would I come to your company? Our work is orbital and beyond low-Earth orbit. We're in the business of private expeditions into outer space. And what does that mean? What sort of things are you looking to do, in the short term at least? In the short term, we're rehabilitating and refurbishing, updating a number of very expensive assets. Two of them are very large space stations that will have electric propulsion on them. One type of propulsion to go from the Earth to the Moon. The other four spacecraft we have are reusable atmospheric return vehicles. They were built during the Cold War by the Russian military, and they're still very robust. They're still completely functional. We're updating them with modern avionics and equipment. In the longer term, we're forming a private expedition Now, this expedition will be in the tradition of the great British expeditions that explored the South Seas and the uh, Indian Ocean and and learned about the world. Uh, We're trying to know the world in a new way and to make Britain a spacefaring society uh, from seafaring to spacefaring, and we hope to be of service. So are you going anywhere? I mean, in the same way we went to Antarctica, we went to the the north, we explored the South Seas. I'm I'm talking about Britain here. Uh, Would you go somewhere, or are you talking about discovery in low-Earth orbit? No, we're not going to stay in low-Earth orbit. Uh, Our station spacecraft will be launched in low-Earth orbit. It's very large. It's 90 cubic metres, which is six times as big as the American uh, Orion capsule. And it'll be the biggest manned spacecraft that's ever been launched. We're going to take that spacecraft and take uh, a crew of three, and we're going to go out toward the Lagrange point, the Euler-Lagrange point, where no human has ever been before, and then turn and fly back 
close to the moon, use the moon's gravity to bend the ship back to the Earth, end up in low Earth orbit, and come home. It'll take about six to eight months. It's a real exploration of discovery to specific places that have great scientific interest. Extraordinary, isn't it? Art Dula from the Isle of Man company Excalibur Almaz. You also heard from Virgin Galactic, Space Adventures and X-Core. Uh, let's have a quick poll uh, around the table. Uh, Sanjeev, uh, which of those options? If money was no object, you know, you're a, you're a well-paid academic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would, which one would you go to go for? Well, I've got air miles with Virgin, so I want to use my air miles. <laughs> you need a, I think you need an awful lot of air miles for, uh, for that. I've you got an awful lot of air miles. Okay, so you, you go for Virgin Galactic. That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay, what about you, Jerry? Oh, I'd have to go for the trip to the ISS. I mean, it's to the International Space Ten Station, days yeah. on there doing experiments and looking out in the world. Oh, that's got to be something. I think that's the one I'd go for. It's orbital. You've got to go for the yeah. orbit experience. Otherwise, the others just strike me as a bit of a joyride. But Sue loves that sort of thing. You I love do. that sort of thing. I am the first in line for anything that looks as though it might make you vomit, <laughs> you know, in a thing. But having said that, listening to them all, um, I would go for the the Soyuz, the training, the experience, the whole period on the space station. Although it was interesting to, to sort of hear the little slight digs between people, like the X-Core guy said, you know, it wouldn't be like at the back of a bus. So you know that's a reference to Virgin <laughs> what, the, Galactic. The pinnacle life experience? Yeah, yeah. The, the sort of who you are. And I, I, I Sorry, my American accent is terrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll get... Um, the, um, but the art doula guy, when he said an expedition, which sounded interesting, but then the Lagrange point, I thought, mm, no. When he said it's in the great British tradition of exploration, the only thing that went through my head was what you mean everyone dies. <laughs> I'm thinking of Scott of the Antarctic, which I'm not sure he should always use that as a selling point. OK, we've got Shackleton, but, you know, that's but not necessarily the first thing that comes Jerry, to Jerry, what do you think of that uh, Excalibur Almas plan? They've got some serious hardware. And a lot of this is Soviet military hardware rather than the civilian uh, space program uh, from the Russians. Do you think it's realistic? Well, it could be. I mean, the, the, the Soyuz launcher is basically the same vehicle that r- launched Sputnik back in 1957, you know, just with a few modifications. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of the most reliable launchers uh, that there is. And uh, I, I'm quite staggered by the size of the vehicle, yeah. but also by the vision that he has of going out to the Lagrange points. Now, that this is something that really strikes a chord with me because one of the presentations I do is about colonies in space, which is based on the work of Gerard O'Neill from the 1970s. And he was talking about building huge colonies out at the Lagrange points cylinders four miles in diameter, 20 miles long, that could house 10 million people. The point, uh, I was going to say the point about the Lagrange point is it's an area of space where there is no... You're not influenced by gravity from anywhere, so you could just stay there, couldn't you? That, that's it. The, the point about the L4 and L5 points, which are at the same distance of the moon, but 60 degrees behind it and 60 degrees in front of it, those are gravitationally stable. If you start to move away from one of those points, then the gravity of the Earth and the Moon will bring you back in line. And by building it with materials, 95% will come from the Moon. Uh, so you're not lifting stuff up from Earth. And then the colonies could construct the large solar power satellites, which could then deliver power 
to Earth and solve our energy crisis. Well, this is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Our guests are Jerry Stone from Spaceflight UK and Sanjeev Gupta, a scientist working on the Mars Science Laboratory. Three, two, one, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Atlas V with curiosity. Seeking clues to the planetary puzzle about life on Mars. The launch of the Mars Science Laboratory in November last year. Jerry, the landing for this mission is quite different to what's gone before, isn't it? It's very different. Nothing like this has ever been tried before on any space mission. And the reason for that is that the the craft is about five times the size of the Mars Exploration Rovers. It's about the size of a Mini Cooper. <laughs> this is massive. And because of that, you yes, obviously you start off with heat shields and parachutes, but parachutes alone are not enough to land this thing safely. To land a car on the planet of the moon. So they're using a device called a sky crane. So after the heat shield has uh, helped to to slow the craft down, while it's still travelling at supersonic speeds, the parachute comes out, that's 50 feet in diameter, that will bring it down to about 600 miles an hour. And then they uh, release the craft from uh, its shield and the eight engines on the sky crane ignite. And that will slow the craft down until when it's a few hundred feet above the planet, it will lower the lander on long tethers. And uh, it cut uh, four of the engines... And eventually, as it'll come down slowly, the wheels of the rover will touch the ground. It'll get an onboard signal which will cut the tethers. And the sky crane then flies away and crashes. <laughs> That's now, because it's just sky crane that, that does that. Um, Sanjeev, as a, as a geologist, what's the advantages for you to use a system like this? Well, I mean, the previous systems, we couldn't necessarily predict exact getting close to sites of geological interest the key science questions and the question you have to ask yourself is is do we spend all this money to go to somewhere that's flat and boring where we can't answer the fundamental mars questions this way lets us get close to cliff faces canyons the sorts of things that engineers worry about but that's where the geology is preserved so it's the forward way to getting to doing the exciting geological science on mars so so there's room for movement here as 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 it's coming into land it can have a look round and see okay actually that looks a bit more interesting than this area and then move towards it yeah it's a, a very small target area the smallest that they've ever had on any missions they're going very deliberately for a specific area and they want to be close to uh, what's called Mount Sharp. This is part of the idea of follow the water because water being a major thing to look for, if there is water, then there is a chance that there may have been life. And so at the bottom of the mountain, of course, the water any that, that may have been in the past will have run downhill, so this is a good place to go to. So they're steering very close to this mountain, which is going to be a spectacular thing to see once it it's on the surface. A- ambitious well. or risky, considering it's not been used before? Both. But uh, you're not going to get great advances if you don't take risks and if you're not ambitious. And you have to do that with something like this. It's not as though you're sending one there every week, so it doesn't matter you know, if you lose one or something. It is a risk, 
but the rewards could be fantastic. Well, let's go on to some of those potential rewards, um, Sanjeev. There are two UK teams on the mission, Imperial College London. Your place is one of them, and I know you're working with collaborators at University College London as well. Now, you're principal investigator of the team. What are you you looking for? You know, what for you are you do you really want to get? What would be a success for you in geological terms? Well, firstly, I think I'm mostly excited about is working with a team of two or three hundred scientists all working on the same problem. As a geologist, you know, I've spent most of my career, 20 years, wandering around the French Alps, the Egyptian desert with a hammer hand by myself. And I look at rocks and try and reconstruct the ancient environments. You know, where were these rocks deposited? You know, was it an ancient river, an ancient lake or an ancient desert? To be able to... I'm not a planetary scientist. I'm new to this game. And to be able to do this on Mars is just an extraordinary. So what I want to do is be able to go up, tell the rover with this team to drive up to a rock face and then look at the features in the rock. And my experience, my terrestrial experience, enables me to try and reconstruct what sort of system. Was it, was it a river? And this, this is, this is a, an interesting science. It's, it's quite difficult. It's not easy. The rocks don't have numbers written on them. And particularly saying, when you don't, you're not there with your little hammer. Yeah, but actually rock faces preserve signatures in the stratification, the ways the layers are laid down. We can already see this. We can see large-scale stratification from the orbital images. That tells us something is sorting it. So we know these are sedimentary rocks that have been sorted by some medium. We want to now work out what that medium was. You know, was it water? Was it very wet? Was it a little bit wet? Or was it completely dry? And that's the thing. We can test these hypotheses. And and where on Earth, for, for you, has been the best sort of preparation in terms of looking at the rocks on Mars? Or is, is, is any geology on Earth adequate preparation for looking a, at rocks a, Any on geology on rock is adequate because we don't really... They've gone to Gale because it's got diverse rocks and diverse hypotheses in the, in the competition for landing sites there were some that were more precise um, in terms of the hypotheses and they've actually chosen Gale because of that diversity so we don't really know exactly what's there and that's great because there's a serendipity attitude to this so when we land we, we, we're not testing an idea that some, something's already there we, these rocks could be ancient rivers as I said or ancient lakes but they could also be ancient um, desert deposits, for example. So the excitement is in that discovery, the first images of the rock faces. That's going to be extraordinary. Now, in, in that um, that clip we heard of the, of the, of the launch, NASA uh, alluded in that slightly bombastic way about life. And that's, that's the selling point, isn't it, on any mission to Mars? You've got to look for signs of life or possibilities that there's water, there could be life. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, you're... The mission is costing two point seven billion dollars. You've got to you've got to be tackling some fundamental philosophical scientific problems. The key with this mission, though, is that it's not about finding life per se. You know, that's a difficult problem. We don't really know what we mean by that. The key to this mission is pr- finding out if there were environments conducive to life forming, but also being preserved. And that's the key: preserved. Life may have existed, but would it have been preserved? We're looking at rocks. On, on Mars, of these rocks in Gale that are as old as some of the ancient, most ancient rocks on Mars which contain life. And actually looking for life on Earth in these really ancient rocks is actually very hard. It's not easy. So there's little clues. And what we think is that, you know, as crystals, as minerals form out of water, they may have entombed microbes. And that, so but fundamentally we want to know, were there low-energy environments 
that may have potentially captured life? And that's the first order question. Jerry, do you think this mission is going to capture people's imagination as the same way that previous missions had? Or are people going to be sort of marsed out? Do we sort of think, well, we've been there before. We've seen the amazing pictures from all the rovers of that amazing sort of red landscape. Will it just be more of the same? No, it will be different this time. And partly is because of the the terrain of the landing area is landing inside this crater uh, which has this huge central peak uh, Mount Sharp which is uh, something like 18,000 feet high wow. and uh, with that as a, you know, coming out in the pictures there's going to be something so and they've chosen a scenic location basically. oh yeah, they definitely yeah. have yeah. <laughs> yeah. but it, you know it, it's for scientific reasons but uh, yeah it is going to look spectacular we talked earlier about um, going to Lagrange points, going back to the moon. What about human missions to Mars? I mean, it's shown with the, with the Apollo missions how much more people could do than a rover trundling around. I appreciate that the science of rovers has got a lot better. But even so, I mean, can you do enough with this? Or will once again we get these sort of tantalising glimpses of little things that we want to investigate further? Uh, no, this rover is just extraordinary. I mean, we have not said anything like this before. It has a sweet of amazing geochemical instruments. You know, I talk to geochemists who work on Earth who are just, like, astonished. So, for example, there's a, a laser on this. And, you know, the, the question with this is, you know, you, you can't sample every rock. This laser is going to be able to basically shoot a, a laser at a rock face and measure the general chemistry of that. There's X-ray diffraction. And there's all these instruments that will get precise mineralogy. We'll be able to do things that we've just not been able to do. And they've miniaturised this. To, you have whole labs on Earth miniaturised to these small boxes. Um, so I think robotic mission for science questions is really the way forward. Longer term, what geologists really want is sample return. Mm. I mean, the big questions for Mars, I mean, there are these life questions, but we actually have bigger questions like, you know, we don't have chronology for Mars. You know, how old are these rocks precisely? We we measure time on Mars, Mars rocks, by counting craters. And that's what that been through, you know, we, we, we've counted craters on the moon. We know what the age of those rocks on the moon are, but we have to make a, a, a transfer of that. What we want to have is precise chronology for Mars, and we don't have that. And we can only do that really by bringing those rocks back. So that's 20, 30 years maybe in time. But at the moment, you know, Mars Science Laboratory will able, be able to answer really fundamental questions about Mars's chemistry, about what makes up the wreck. And in, fa in fact, some of these things you know, actually, a, a geologist on Earth couldn't do, actually. I, you, you have to go back into the... You have to go into the field and bring those rocks back. Well, actually, MSL can do it there, which is amazing. Are you worried at all, either of you? Obviously, Mars doesn't have... It's a difficult planet to get to. It doesn't have a great track record in terms of successes. I think a third yeah. of missions fail. Yeah, one in three fail. Is failure not an option? Do you consider that? I mean, I just have this these memories of sitting in a press conference with the Beagle 2 team and how soul-destroying that was, waiting for a signal. How are you going to be feeling waiting for that, both of you? Well, I'm hoping to be uh, watching on NASA TV. It's uh, half past six in the morning of August the 6th. So that's the time to be uh, to be getting up early and uh, the thing to do is to have already cut your fingernails so that you're not biting them <laughs> while this thing is going through what's called the seven minutes of terror, which is the entry, descent and landing sequence. And, of course, although that's taking seven minutes to get down to the surface, back on Earth, uh, 
Well, they're not going to know about it until after it's happened because of the, the time lag for the radio signals. I'm not worried because it's, <laughs> the, it. it's the way forward, you know. It, they've spent 10, 15 years designing this thing. It's going to be the technology involved in preparing this is technology we've built up. We're going to use it in the future. So I'm really looking forward to it landing and trundling off to look at the first rocks. I like it. I admire your confidence. Over the next few months here on the Space Boffins podcast, we'll be celebrating the missions that made the Apollo moon landings possible. NASA's Gemini missions of the mid-1960s included the first American spacewalk and a series of orbital docking manoeuvres. The first manned Gemini spacecraft, Gemini 3, was launched in 1965. And on board were astronauts Gus Grissom and John Young. And here are some extracts from the original mission control recordings of the launch. Germany control, little cross conversation going between Gus Grissom and John Young on the various lights and their positions. Everything in a go condition. The count, T minus one minute and 20 seconds. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. And we have a liftoff. We have a liftoff at 24 minutes after the hour. That's a roll program. All right, roger, roll. Flight plus 10 seconds. The clocks have started. Roger. We are advised that uh, Grissom has separated from the booster at this time. He is in orbit. Momentarily, we'll have the numbers on that orbit. Flight, Fido, we're go. Roger. Capcom, we're go. Roger, you are go, Molly Brown. Capcom from flight. Go, flight. Ask him how it looks. All right. Molly Brown, Cape Capcom. I go, Cape Capcom. Look better from there than on a ballistic flight? Yeah, Does it look better from there than on a ballistic flight? Uh, Roger, how do it look? Right. <laughs> Reminder that uh, astronauts weren't chosen for their powers of description. Uh, can anyone around the table, I know Jerry will know the answer to this, uh, tell me why the capsule was called Molly Brown? Well, Molly Brown was uh, a survivor from the Titanic. He made a uh, film out of it with Debbie Reynolds in it. Yes, the unsinkable Molly, Molly Brown. Brown yeah. And the reason that Gus chose that as the name was because his Mercury spacecraft actually sank in the Atlantic after uh, the splashdown. NASA actually weren't that happy about it being called Molly Brown. They thought it was a bit frivolous. They said, do you have another name? And he said, yeah, how about Titanic? <laughs> <laughs> how important, Jerry, were the, the Gemini missions? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, as you said in the beginning, Apollo couldn't have taken place without them. They essentially took all the parts of the moon flights, apart from, of course, an actual landing, and tried them out uh, one at a time in orbit around the Earth. So you had rendezvous... It had EVA going outside the spacecraft, docking, and that proved, actually, that one day a lunar module would be able to lift off from the moon and rejoin the command module in orbit. Sanjeev, they were remarkable missions, weren't they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they, they were happening at the time I was born, so <laughs> I don't have much memory of them, but uh, I think it was just the fact that they were building up to something big, and that's the key with science. They don't happen in these single events. You actually have a lot of precursor 
preparations to so in some ways for like like a Mars mission the Opportunity rovers have been the preparation and the success of those Opportunity rovers you know lasting seven years have really made MSL possible so I I do just want to mention that the two astronauts there um, Gus Grisham um, who Jerry you mentioned um, had the the incident in the uh, the second uh, suborbital Mercury flight Um, he died uh, Gus Grisham in the Apollo 1 fire so in 1967 I think uh, alongside Roger Chaffee and Ed White. Um, the other person, John Young, I interviewed John Young a few years ago. He is the most unassuming person. I wanted to talk to him about walking on the moon. He, he was in uh, the Gemini program. He's two Apollo missions. He flew the sp- first space shuttle. He then flew another space shuttle. Um, he wanted to talk about computers. <laughs> he didn't want to talk about any of this stuff. He was the most unassuming man, incredible man. Well, our thanks to guests, Jerry Stone, and a little bit of you is landing on Mars, isn't it? You've got your, is it a name on a CD-ROM there? That, that's right. When uh, Curiosity lands on Mars, then I'll be landing with it. Uh, my name is among the mission supporters' names, which is on a microchip on the spacecraft, so Excellent. I'll be getting to Mars as well. And good luck, and thank you to Professor Sanjeev Gupta. We'll be keeping our fingers crossed for you and looking forward to hear about some of the results you're going to get at some stage in the future. The Space Boffins podcast is produced in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and a grant from the UK Space Agency. We'll be back in a month, but uh, next time in the Naked Astronomy podcast, Ben will be finding out how researchers benefit from citizen science using data from the Galaxy Zoo Project to probe the universe. Nice word, probe. Uh, Plus, he'll be discovering four impossible binary star systems that challenge our understanding of how stars form and answering your space science questions. If there's anything you'd like to ask, email astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. Do follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Space Boffins. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham. Thanks very much for listening.